um, yeah. big, big choices you made. So, uh, you know, start please by talking about your, uh, your background and, and, uh, what led you up to the point of, of, uh, starting a, a career in sales and entrepreneurship? Yeah. Um, well, I guess going into my background, I grew up in Minnesota, um, went after graduating, graduated from actually a smaller, the road school in Minnesota, um, worked in a mid-sized company to start off with here, uh, and kind of learned a lot about sales, uh, business. And in the first couple of years, I ended up actually deciding that that wasn't the direction I wanted to go. And that's where a huge shift, um, happened for me where it was like, okay, well, now what do I want to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, in that, that time of a little bit of turmoil, it was like, all right, do I want to just go into the next thing just to do it? Or do I want to be super intentional about what that next thing is? And that decision and kind of the unknown at that time led me to actually drop everything. So I, I left that job that I'd worked, I'd worked at this company for, for three years, um, kind of worked my way up uh, to own a certain um, industry within us. So I, was in, I got up to a technical sales role where I was traveling a lot, but Although it was really cool and I learned a lot, it wasn't really feeding um, feeding me in the way that I, I wanted to. I'm feeding my heart and my, I guess, my desires of, of what I wanted to actually do. Um, <clears throat> ended up dropping everything. I moved to China, um, lived there for a year and a half during the main parts of COVID. Um, wow. But during that time is where a lot of shifts happened for me where I was like, okay, when I go back, so I had some goals for myself, some personal goals while I was in China, and that was very much tied to language. And um, and so I knew that once I did get there, you know, China wasn't necessarily where I wanted to live long, long term. Um, and so I knew I, there was a time where I was going to go back. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, your experience and, you know, you were involved in teaching over in China. And uh, yep. obviously that, that has its own unique challenges and uh, for an American going over there, especially in COVID, talk about that a little bit, because that sounds like an amazing experience. Yeah, it was. Um, it was, I mean, I have a little bit of a background of working um, with youth in terms of teaching, not, not necessarily English before, but um, so that was a route to get me to China uh, in the easiest way possible so that I could work on those more personal um, kind of goals. But the teaching portion of it there was awesome. I mean, it was a really good program. Um, I was able to teach different age kids how to, how to speak English. And um, so I, I enjoyed it. It was rewarding um, in, in a certain way. Uh, it was, it was fun. Um, I don't know how much, I guess, more to say about the teaching aspect of it. I mean, the time in China was, was, I have, there's always been a special interest that I've had with China. I studied, uh, I mean, I went to school for international business. Um, So languages, uh, kind of working with people across borders has always been something that has been super interesting to me. Um, So Going there originally as a student, the idea was, okay, how, how can I consume as much information about such a rising 
um, empire per se. Um, and so I studied there six months in Shanghai. Um, I came when, when there was this kind of break in the career where I decided I was no longer going to work at the at LaceX, which was the first company I worked for, for three years. Um, that was my time. I knew I was going to go back to China at some point. That was my time to do it. I said, this is the time. Um, so went back, um, the COVID time was a super, I guess, to jump, unless you want me to dive into more of China or, or teaching, I no, guess. I, I want to talk. Is- what I'm really getting at is, is some some really powerful lessons, messages, uh, ways that you changed your thinking as a result of, you know, you went over there, you said, you know what, I'm going to get to China and my vehicle is going to be English as a second language, right? Because that's what you were doing. And yep. what, but while I was there, something really special happened like or i found yeah. looked at began to look at something slightly differently which made me do this that or the other thing a slightly different way yeah and i actually think a lot of the shift actually happened before china so okay um, so talk about that then yeah yeah so before china in the in the couple of weeks after i had left the company um i was doing some personal networking and and kind of just um trying to learn as much as possible i and i went um i was at a conference uh with some uh some family and friends and this idea came to me. i was looking at you know forty thousand people all wearing the same uncomfortable clothing and i always had had a different i hated i, I was very against this idea of ties for whatever reason um, you know, at a certain point while I was traveling, um, so much as a technical sales rep, like clothing became really important to me. Um, mm, so Lululemon originally like came out with their pants for men, you know, men had very, uh, before then we really had worn women, women were able to kind of get on this board of comfort before men were, it was, um, men took a while. It was just a shirt on our backs. We didn't really understand what comfort meant and what technical fabrics could do for us and Mm -hmm. what, you know, potentially paying $20 more, $50 more for a a piece of a garment that might last a year or two longer and give you way more versatility when it comes to like your day-to-day life, being able to, you know, think you can think about one is like, for me, I guess, originally it started, I'll kind of double down on the pants, like no wrinkles, being able to wear out uh with friends but also being wear- being able to wear it with a suit um being able to travel and not worry about you know all these stains and all the like smell um because that was built in the fabric right it was built mm-hmm. this fabric was built for odor resistance um wrinkle resistance um comfort and stretch and that was kind of new to me at that time and i think it was new in general i mean we think back to this was 2000 and 18 when really athleisure was in its infancy um so really the technology and fabric uh at our fingertips is what what kind of started this and then it was a matter of okay that that is possible right we have this fabric that can do all of this these different things i mean now what what can we do that's different um, and that's where it was. All right. How can we offer a, a different style to men 
so that even if we can get one different dress shirt into every man's uh, you know, closet, we, we are giving them a different option, a different look, more comfort, um, giving them a different route than what the traditional norms are of, and, and we're talking back when, when work apparel was much stricter, right? Like things have changed. Mm-hmm. So that in a lot of ways worked in our favor, right? Um, you know, the laws of, of formal wear have changed uh, at a perfect time where, where people were, I guess, I think people were done with the uncomfortable clothes. They were done with going to conferences and, and yeah, I guess being uncomfortable when, when really it's about what you bring to the table. Um, and so as long as you look good, you should be comfortable. Um, so uh, that started at this conference where I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I, w- I want to I start a clothing company with the most technical fabric on the planet, um, but I, I don't want to do our traditional dress shirts. Uh, I want to offer something new to men um, that doesn't compromise on style, doesn't compromise on comfort. Um, so that's where it started. Uh, after that conference, about two weeks later, I did leave, uh, leave the country. That was kind of where the adventure started. Um, went to China, uh, in, in China, you know, the first, I would say first eight months was very much focused on life, on learning on, I mean, I was, I studied Chinese every day. I taught English every day. Um, so it was very much work oriented when COVID happened, it freed up a certain amount of time. Mm, right. um, I was locked in what we call a hutong in China, which is their traditional homes. Um, and that those are one story kind of studio bedrooms. And I was locked in there. I was working from home for the first time. Um, and I had, I found myself with more time. I, at this time I'd gotten really good at teaching. I'd gotten really good at the curriculum. I knew everything like the back of my hand. I mean, I knew it, knew it all. Um, and so I didn't, the prep work that needed to go into this and I wasn't sitting in an office. So I had a lot more time and that was when it really kicked in. And when this idea became um, a real project where I was trying to, you know, when I wasn't teaching and when I wasn't studying Chinese, uh, I was working with, you know, China and Taiwan, some of the most technical uh, mills in the world for fabric. And so a lot of the technology comes from there we did you know we were working on bringing in some foreign technology as well we we uh um, partnered with a company called outlast at this time really with the goal of creating the most technical that was the first goal it's like Mm -hmm. i know the style let's create the most technical fabric that we can that gives every you know all those bells and whistles when we ended up i don't know how much we ended up putting uh, NASA heat regulating fibers, these poly encapsulated uh, heat cells into our, our fibers, which helped for our heat regulation. We ended up, you know, coming up with all of these features for this shirt, just simply focusing at the, at the beginning end, how can I learn and how can I create a fabric that's unbelievable? Um, you, you had a question. Yeah, so that's amazing that you were, you know, COVID for so many people, it, it hammered their lives hard and, you know, various people responded to it in different ways. In your case, 
because of the decision you had made before and to basically go over there and and you know with your teaching mission did you know before you were going over there that you would be really doing this high high level investigation of fabric uh, manufacturers and textile mills or is that something that you just were able to pick up because you were there a little bit of both um i think i knew that this is a project that i you know a mission that i wanted to do i knew that that i wanted to start this company um i didn't know when it was at i think there's always in at a certain phase mostly at the beginning in the first you know this is not I, i've done a lot of random started companies as younger but this is the first real company it was e-commerce you know it was a different uh level of starting a company than i'd done beforehand um and so I think with that first project, you never really, you have an idea. You don't really know until all of a sudden it's like, I'm doing this. And, right. and then you dive in. And once you, you dive in, you have to keep the, that, you have to keep that momentum and that traction going within yourself because a lot of that's when people stop, right? Mm-hmm. Some, something becomes too hard at the beginning. I can't source this. I don't know. I don't know how to do this. And so people just quit. The idea goes nowhere. Um, luckily I think, you know, due to the place I was in, it gave me a, I guess I learned a lesson where I, I was in the right place. I was in the right place around the right expertise. Um, a lot of the testing, I think about, you know, people, I talk to friends quite often who are, or people within my community, they're like, I want to start a clothing company. I'd love to talk, you know, talk about it with you, just see, you know, what your process was about creating it, um, Kickstarter and so on. And I think, you know, doing it from here would have been incredibly expensive. The lessons would have been way more expensive, right? Like shipping back and forth, speaking with different manufacturers. I was able to go and meet with tens of manufacturers to better understand capabilities, you know, what we wanted in terms of like the facilities, like it was important to me at that time, still is like, we want to make sure that people are getting paid fair wages. We want to make sure that the environment that they're working in is is healthy, uh, safe. So, and that the materials that we're using are not hurting other people. And so not every facility that we saw was like that, right? So it's going in, it's learning and traditionally, you want, I mean, if we're trying to create one of the most technical fabrics on the planet, we don't want, like it does, we want to work with someone who's got a crazy nice facility that is doing all those things no matter what. But that doesn't just happen, right? People might say they've got this, 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 they're OSHA certified, they've got, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. But that doesn't mean much until you get on site. And so I was in the right place where I was able to make those decisions, meet the right people, learn a lot we went back and forth on developing this fabric. Um, you know, we went up, there was a lot of shipping back and forth, which from the U S to China would have been, it would have been expensive and it would have taken a lot of time. Um, but because I was there, I was able to speed the, I was able to expedite those, that learning. Um, and I was able to expedite the process without spending tons of, of money to do so. So I think, yeah, it's it was a little bit of when you have an idea, 
it's getting through those first stages without getting scared. And a lot of times when something hard happens or something you don't understand, you quit. Um, and you got to find different ways to, to keep it going. And for me, the location helped. Um, well, if, and, if I could interrupt quickly, you started by, off by saying, luckily, I was over there and, it, you know, to summarize, it was cheaper and you got, a, 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 uh, you were geographically in this great place to do the investigation in a much more efficient way. Yep. Carl Jung would have called that a sustained synchronicity because you had yeah. this great intention, you went over there and somehow without you having pre-planned it, you ended up being at the right place is what it kind of sounded like to me. Yeah. So no, I, I think, I think so for sure. Um, yeah. So I spent about eight months just grinding to find, you know, eight months where we were locked in, absolutely locked. I mean, in China, it was, uh, in some, I mean, it was, it was similar to in some places in the U S but, but it was for a while there was, I was in my apartment and that's all I went where, you know, and that helps. That helps. You know what? Uh, Could you that helps for, with productivity? Yeah. For our cur the curiosity of the American uh, victims of of the COVID epidemic, you know, we had our. Yeah. Uh, I happen to be considered a uh, so-called uh, essential worker, and you know there yeah. are a few classes of of occupation where you could get in a car and drive to work. Obviously, that was not the case for you. Talk about how that went down from the standpoint of an American in, you know, how are you getting your food and, you know, taking care of these other things that usually require yeah. going out of your location? Yeah. And so this was, so actually on um, January 26th, uh, when things really took off in China, I was, I remember looking at flights uh, skyrocketing and it felt like this mm. it felt like a it felt you know you watch those movies um day after tomorrow or what whatever the other one was 2021 um and you see these things happen and that and that's not what was happening but it felt weird watching prices of flights to get out of china going i mean astronomically expensive and so I was on the phone with, you know, people back home and some doctors and people that in my community, I was just trying to figure out, you know, what's, what's going to happen? Like, how serious is this? What, what's, what's going on? Um, and I ended up making the decision. I, I, I hopped on a, on a flight um, a day later, a United flight that fortunately everything else on Google, uh, on Google flights was crazy, but somehow I was able to find a, a somewhat reasonable flight home. Uh, and I got, I got home. I got back to Minnesota. Um, first time kind of being almost like a, a risk to society where people were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Some, some people were like, we can't see you for a certain amount of time. And at that time it was weird, right? Because the U.S. hadn't felt it yet. They didn't really know. No one was, no, we didn't know much. Um, so I ended up staying back in Minnesota for a month. And then I made the decision, despite my family and everyone else saying no, um, I made the decision to fly back and that was probably the last, maybe the last three days that was possible to fly back during that time. Um, and at that point you were in the middle of your investigation of suppliers. Yeah, I was in the middle of everything. Um, and I just felt like if I stayed back, I was, 
I was going to lose something. Not only was I going to lose my my business or my work visa in China, which was kind of hard to get. Um, I was going to lose this opportunity to be where I was. I just had, I, there was so much traction at that time. I was in the right mindset. I was in the right place. And the movement back home, it just, it threw me off. And I, and I, I don't know, I felt this drawback. And it, despite everyone else saying, don't do it. I remember my, my parents, you know, the classic parents, but I remember them like crying when I was leaving. And I was like, well, I, I got to do this. And it's fine. Like, we're not, this isn't that bad. You know, we're going to be okay. Uh, and so I, I ended up flying back. So a month later on, uh, literally a month exactly on February 26th, 2019 or 20, um, I flew back to Beijing, um, moved back in, was locked down for the first 14 days with like security guards at my door checking. You couldn't leave at all during the first 14 days. Um, after that, you could go out and, uh, I mean, at that point, China, there was not many outbreaks. And so it was very, the first, the initial, like when you get there, it was lockdown. If there were cases, lockdown. But fortunately, in my neighborhood, there weren't that many. Um, and so after the 14 days, I was allowed to go out uh, to get food, do do the things that I wanted to do. Um, mostly, I mean, it wasn't everyone was wearing masks and so on, but um, I was able to get out. And um it was interesting though. They had like a card system. So each neighborhood you'd go in and out and you, if you didn't have, if you weren't a part of that community, you can enter. Hmm. So that was an interesting part and just kind of a tactic, a strategy that they use to, to really control things there. Um, but there was still not much, you when you're working from home, there's not much to do really. And in a city that's traditionally like super lively, I mean, Right. Shanghai and Beijing are some of the most interesting cities on the planet, in my opinion. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a time where I was really able to lock down, focus on what I wanted to do. Um, and I don't think, I think back to that time, that time very fondly, whereas a lot of people, I think, hated that time of being locked in. But because I had so much, I had projects, I had things that I was working on, and I was in this state of like extreme focus. Um, and I think, I mean, that comes from decision fatigue too, right? You don't have all these things that you're thinking about that you can do. You are locked in and this is, this is the world. This is the goal. Um, so it allowed for, yeah, a certain level of focus that, that is, I think hard that I've had a hard, I always search for still. Um, and I try to find, you know, I try to organize my life to give me that, um, because I think it was a, it was such a fun. I mean, you're 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 at the peak of your brain's capacity, right? You're like I found, you know, when you when you don't have all those decisions to make, very much tied to. I'll bring up decision fatigue. I mean, but like memory, productivity, all of these things are just enhanced. Um, so I was able to. To just I was able to move really quickly with everything I was doing and I had the goal for language at the same time so I was really studying that um so the next year uh I spent there it was like a well but actually nine months um that was 
just, I mean, I was, I had started this, this company. Well, we were about to start. We had, we had everything in place. We developed the, fa- the fabrics. We developed the clothing. We did the samples. We were ready to go. Um, that was when the decision was made on my part that, all right, I had finished what I came here to do. Um, now, Kickstarter, we, we decided to go, well, I decided to go the Kickstarter route to get things started. Okay, hold um, on one second. Yeah. Chad, um, first of all, that it's an amazing story, and we want to get back to that. And I want to climax at the end <laughs> when yeah. we talk about how, you know your launch and, and stuff like that. But right now, if I'm not mistaken, you've got two gigs going on. You've got your entrepreneur thing, and you've got your uh, enterprise account executive. So you talk about decision f- fatigue and focus you know when you're doing two you know huge jobs like that which a lot of people in in our life do you know as an entrepreneur and and a salesman you know we we have multiple uh hats we wear and multiple things we have to turn our very precious attention to so for for all the people in our audience that are are uh in kind of that similar situation talk about what you're doing with octo and how you master the art of, you know, code switching back and forth while making sure that you're, you know, giving, you know, each uh, obligation exactly what it deserves and then some. Yeah. Um, For me, I mean, I try to build processes around everything because naturally I don't think that that's where I like naturally, I don't think that's a strong point. So I build these processes around to make sure that, there's focus time around everything. And I mean, I'm, I'm a lot of people are familiar with, with like time blocking. Um, that's, that's how I've decided like that works for me. Um, so I build a certain amount of time um, that goes to to Cheeks and, and the, the, the company. And then, you know, a certain amount of time that goes to every aspect of Octo, right? Like every activity that needs to be done everything is time blocked out um it's not perfect i don't always stay perfect on it i wish i did it's like you know, it's one of those perfect. things where it's like one of those things where you you know what you need you know what what works uh you don't always follow it um but that's what works the best for me is i really or organize my time and, and just say this is when i'm going to spend time on uh on cheeks this is when i'm going to spend time on octo I think if you're trying to go back and forth and doing it all at the same time, that's when that really becomes difficult because you're not able to really put in focus time and, and determine what what needs to be done today. Um, because you can always figure out things that need to be done. There's always mm-hmm. going to be a list of a million things, but saying, all right, what do we need to do? And, and doing something um, that gets you closer, um, knocking those things off your list. But that happens in a certain amount of time. Um, and and granted though with with cheeks now i've i've i'm not doing everything i've got a marketing person that that uh that helps on a lot of of that so um he's fantastic got you know some some customer service representatives like a lot of the responsibilities that aren't necessarily things that i need to be doing i'm not doing um right. so that helps alleviate a lot of that um uh, so that, yeah, I guess to answer your question, it's time blocking. It's finding those responsibilities that I don't necessarily need to be doing and giving it to someone else who's better fit for it. 
Um, so, so a strong discipline towards processes and procedures and priorities. Yeah, the process, the process is huge. Yeah. Um, and that goes into, I mean, with Octo too, it's like. So talk about Octo for a second, because it seems like a really interesting company that, that has the potential to really benefit, not just you, the salesman, the company and, and a customer, but to really broaden out in, in a radiating wave of benefit, multiple uh, stakeholders and, and classes of stakeholders. Yeah, Octo's a, a really fun, um, I'm super excited. I mean, we're a smaller team. We just got, uh, we just ran through our, we just completed our Series A. So we got some um, amazing funding to grow. Um, what Octo does, we're a software company um, serving a more archaic industry, which is like, you know, surplus equipment in a lot of ways. Uh, but really what we do is we're an end-to-end lifecycle management company. We work with some of the tier one companies on the planet. So the General Motors, uh, the Boeings of the world. And what we do is we give them visibility into all of their assets um, across every one of their their locations. And I'm not talking about like their their direct assets, not their cars, right? Um, I'm talking about everything that goes into their operations. So their capital equipment, uh, their indirect inventory. Um, what we, and for people who don't know what that is, it's like the tooling. Um, the large equipment, the robots, uh, all of that. I mean, uh, companies like this have millions and millions and millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of of capital equipment, and they're constantly spending on it. And so what we do is we help optimize. We help give them visibility. We help give central processes for them so that they can better manage um, their equipment. So it's a, it's a really, as a software company in this industry, I mean, we are we are certainly in a place where we have a huge industry, and we're taking a completely different approach um, than anything else that's out there. So it's it's really exciting what we're doing, um, and we've built an incredible, incredible product. I mean, one of a, our engineering team and product team is unbelievable, um, and so we're super exciting. We're excited. We're bringing on. We've brought on, you know, plenty of. 50 to a hundred billion dollar companies. Um, and that's fun. You know, now it's working with some of the, the biggest companies on the planet to, to make their life a little easier and to help, help them, um, be better. So well, just um, to, to really examine closely what they do, it sounds like you're producing a product that analyzes valuations of this capital equipment. Let's call it, you know, everything on an assembly line and that assembly line received a certain investment. And then over time you, you get your depreciation and there's maintenance that needs to be done and so forth. And at any given time, let's say hypothetically, a banker wants to know how much it's worth or the accountant has to know what type of tax deduction. Is that kind of what it is? Um, one benefit of what we do is we provide augmentation to give valuations on the secondhand market of every asset. So ERP systems are really good at asset management or asset accounting. Mm-hmm. They're not good at asset management. So we're not replacing an ERP system. What we're doing is providing an add-on that gives certain value, right? And certain value goes to certain different people. One, valuations is huge, right? That, that is huge, but that's not all that Octo does. Um, you know, valuation is just one element of what our uh, augmentation engine is able to do is we're able to analyze, harmonize data, 
and I know that means very little to most people. But when you look at, you know, let's let's say we're looking at a master list of of twenty thousand different parts. Um, all could be worth anywhere from a thousand dollars to a million dollars or ten million dollars. Each one of those parts is at all of these different locations. Garbage in, garbage out. Let's think about that. A lot of times, ERP systems are you're entering information or someone is entering information. If they don't do it in the right way and it's not consistent, that is very much in that, like it, it doesn't help anyone. And so what we're able to do is harmonize the data across every single location in an enterprise so that these companies can look across all of their locations. One, they could see the value of, of an asset, which is hugely helpful. So if they could determine, okay, our book value is this. This is what it's worth today. Does it make sense to do, you know, what disposition channel? So how are we going to dispose of this? Can we send it to another location? That's huge. Redeployment for large companies with millions of dollars of CapEx or, or indirect inventory is huge. You're able to lower procurement costs tax-wise. You're, you're, you're killing it on that because of you're sharing it internally. A lot of times people are just buying and buying when it hits a certain inventory level, they buy another when they don't really need it. And that could that part could be used at another facility. What we do is get rid of the silos, give you visibility, allow for redeployment, harmonize data so that you can make those decisions um, and then you know provide all of the correct and uh, information that people need to me make accurate and good decisions when it comes to procurement. Um, and that, you know, company, companies see savings on the bill, ability to optimize, the ability to redeploy, um, and the ability to find, you know, follow best practices when it comes to the time when they do have to dispose of, of this equipment. Um, you know, we, we provide a service to, to help find those disposition channels. Um, so it's really cool. So awesome to uh, have a, a day job to uh, support such an amazing project as the other one you're working on. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so, great. so, so you're, you're right now, I actually looked at your website and I, I could see you do have some stuff uh, that, that is available, but talk about the process of, of, uh, you know, going live with your, with your offering of cheeks. Yeah. Um, so the first, uh, we ran a Kickstarter at the end of 2020 um, I literally arrived back in Minnesota, did a quarantine and shot a video the day after it was done because we wanted to do things before Christmas because Christmas isn't a good time for uh, the holidays and not a good time for Kickstarters. <clears throat> um, so after this, I mean, during the Kickstarter process, that's, that's a conversation of its own. I mean, that's a pretty long Kickstarter is a beast. Uh, mm -hmm. it is a interesting community ecosystem. Um, there's different strategies to it. We learned a lot. Um, we ended up raising about $40,000 um, to start that covered our first production run, um, a lot of our marketing. Um, but really, it was a good way to test the market, understand if this was an idea that was worth <laughs> worth doing <laughs> before mm -hmm. we spent all that money. Um, and so the Kickstarter gave us a lot of the data gave us a lot of a better understanding of who our customer was um, and where they were, their interests and so on. And then gave us, I guess, the, all the tools to be able to launch the, the company. Um, since then, I mean, that was back end of 2020. So we, 
now been uh, running for, well, to, to actually do the first production run. I'd say, I always say our, we launched in tw- end of 2020, but we really launched uh, July, well, June of, of 2021. Um, that was when we, our website was officially live. We were able to sell shirts. We began this process of really, you know, we sent out all of the Kickstarter orders and we started selling shirts. Um, and so direct to com- consumers via the, your internet presence. Yeah, we very we have very much focused on direct consumer e-commerce. Um, so a lot of what we do is is ads, um, you know, different in different areas. But um, you know, it, it's finding people uh, and finding people that are that are looking for different options within men's apparel and that are looking for shirts like like Cheeks can offer. And so we've sold now thousands and thousands of shirts um, across. Mostly North America, but across really, I mean, our Kickstarter was all over the world. Uh, mm-hmm. We had buyers in, in, I think, 40 different countries. Wow. Um, and so, I, I don't quote me on that. I don't, I don't know exactly. But we have all over the place. Um, and we've continued to kind of grow. We're, I mean, we're, we're, still, we're still scrappy and small in a lot of ways. Right. Um, and that, that makes us, it fun. We're a small team. Um, but we're, we're constantly, you know, we're, we're working on now. The, the thing is we know we've got incredible products, our, our reviews and our customers. And we talk about, you know, actually we've been doing a lot of surveys for customers recently and calls and interviews just to better understand why, you know, why is someone spending a thousand dollars on cheeks? Like we've got customers that have spent thousands of dollars on shirts, which to me is that, I mean, it's exciting, right? It's it says, hey, like we have something that people love. Um, there's not anything out there that is the same. There are collarless shirts out there. There are Mandarin shirts. There, you know, there are banded shirts. There's all of these different options out there, but nothing that gives the elegance um, of these, where you can walk into a super formal event or you know be hanging out wherever. Um, the 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 original. 2.0s and 1.0s that we sold uh, are very much formal. Um, we're now kind of trying to, we are, we are offering more casual, more things for, you know, the normal person to go out to their, their different events. But these, you know, I wear these to weddings. I, you know, mm-hmm. people, we have a lot of wedding photos. We have a lot of people who buy them um, and pay for expedited shipping because they say, Hey, we've got this wedding this weekend. Um, so it's fun to offer something new to that formal wear space. Um, but we are certainly working to offer it to, to these people in, in a, with different capabilities, like our newest Sear, Sear tech shirts that came out are much more casual. Um, are they, they're not t-shirts. That's for sure. Um, but they, they can be worn. Uh, they're a little bit more versatile when it comes to the, the places that they can be worn. Whereas our formal wear is formal. Uh, and I think it, it's funny at first, I think I was like, you know, I'm going to wear these everywhere, but really it's, and I do, I still, I mean, the comfort is incredible, but now it's, it's fun to have different options that fit more uh, of the different uh, things that you're doing. Uh, Cause again, our first shirts were very much work, weddings, nice events, um, you know, anything where you really need to, to look good. Uh, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, 
it's it's been an exciting journey and we're we're constantly we're, we're releasing new products getting out there we're learning more um and we're growing uh, this cheese community so uh really excited about it well it's beautiful and i'm proud to uh have uh had this discussion with you there's i don't know if you've ever heard the the german saying kleider machen leute that means i've not Clothes make people. So you you've really gotten to, from what I've seen and what I've heard. You you know you've really revolutionized. I think it's revolutionizing the, the uh, clothing uh, industry. It's you know this is an industry that's been around for ten thousand years. Yeah, <laughs> and you're doing something really beautiful for it. So I salute you. And thank uh, you. Thank you for being on this podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm going to look forward to following your career for a long time and following your lineup as well as buying some of your clothes. Um, but uh, nothing but love and peace and, uh, you know, wishes for permanent uh, prosperity for you and your family and everybody you touch. Keep up the good work. Brother. Well, thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your time.